Welcome to listeners, it's time for episode 107 of the Slump Buster Podcast. I'm your host, Juju Talk Sports, and my guest today is going to be both MMA Dre, Andre Wynn, my former co-host, returning to the show for the first time since episode 100, and my second guest is going to be Mike the Mobster Gomez, an aspiring MMA fighter out of California. On today's episode, we talk all things MMA, whether it be fighter pay, Ariel Hawani, or this crazy heavyweight division. But before we do that, folks, it's time to give a shout out to our partner, Caveman Coffee Co. Caveman is a fantastic single source, single origin goodness from a company with impeccable taste and ethics. The people behind it are beautiful souls, and the coffee is delicious fuel for the never-ending quest to do better, be better, love harder, and enjoy deeper. Guys, I tell you, their nitro cold brew is the perfect blend of energy and refreshment in the morning. Great way to start the day. But why stop there? They have their mammoth blends, which I highly encourage you getting. They have their hibiscus teas, which are delicious. And guys, if you use our promo code slump, you get 15% off your next purchase of any of these fantastic products. Kmancoffeeco.com, promo code slump. Guys, don't be a chump. Use promo code slump and get yourself a case today. All right, y'all, it's time for the episode, MMA Dre, Juju Talk Sports, Mike the Mobster, Gomez, episode 107. Let's get it, let's bust the slump, and let's enjoy. Welcome to Slump Busters, it's time for episode 107 of the Slump Buster Podcast. I'm your host, Juju Talk Sports. And we have a very MMA-centric episode on tap for you. So welcome in first on the show, your own MMA Dre, Andre Wynn. Welcome back. And then joining us also, uh, the gentleman to my right or left, depending on how this comes out post-editing here, Mr. Michael Gomez, Michael the Mobster Gomez. We got to keep comedy to a minimum on this pod, folks. Uh, sorry about that, as uh, my current guest is dealing right now with a rib issue. Yeah, that's right. Uh, thanks for having me here. I'm very blessed to be here. Nothing too crazy, just a little bit sore down there. So just going to take it easy. What happened? Like, kind of walk us through. Was it during training or like uh, how'd that come about? Yeah, so uh, yesterday was just sparring day. We always spar on Fridays uh, at my gym, Gracie Fighter Stockton. Great gym, great guys in there. Um, just sparring with one of my teammates, Ernie, got me with a good kick and uh, felt that one a little bit. Uh, finished out the round though and then after uh, you know I was like feeling around felt kind of funny so I told my coach hey uh, I think I'm gonna take it easy for a little bit and he said sounds good and what type of level of competition are you in like right now like where's your kind of career and what would this fight have meant to you if you had to step down from um, yeah, so this is just amateur mixed martial arts here in uh, California. Uh, I've been fighting for about seven years now. This will be my fifth fight uh, with 559 Fights. Uh, so the last fight I was, was with 559 Fights. And then um, that was about 2019, a couple years ago. It was the main event of that fight. And then COVID happened and everything. So we took a two-year layoff. I was getting ready for this upcoming fight in uh, September 18th down in Visalia. And that was going to mean a lot because that was a fight that uh, was a number one contender fight. And then if I win that fight, uh, I fight for a championship belt, which would have been pretty exciting. But me and my coach talked it out. We're going to see how everything goes and then, um, you know, discuss a game plan about that. Nice. Yeah, I know all about rib injuries. I'm, I'm sure Juju will tell you our district uh, of our senior year, one of my ribs popped out wrestling, you know, and, and after that, like, couldn't get up, like I couldn't wear a backpack, nothing like that. So had to stay home from school for a week. 
But I mean, it's exciting. It sounds like you're on a good trajectory. When do you think you'll make that leap from, you know, amateur to pros? Because some people do it in one fight. Some people do it in five fights. So I guess what's that trajectory look like for you, Mike? Yeah, you know, um, over the past few years, I've just kind of built this confidence of just being in that cage and just being relaxed all the time. And right now, like I was just so confident going into this fight and I still feel confident about myself and my skills and everything. And just working with my coach, Coach Torres at Gracie Fighter Stockton and working on my Muay Thai skills, things like that. I'm a really good wrestler. I've been wrestling since, you know, I was a kid and elite level wrestling here in California is second to none. Um, and so I was getting ready to go pro here, uh, maybe at the end of this year, um, in 2019, going into 2020, I was confident that I was going to go pro that year, but then, uh, everything had happened. And so now, uh, it just pushed the game plan a little bit back, but, uh, with everything that's going on right now, it'll probably be, you know, early 2022. I'm looking to make my pro debut. It also depends on my coaches, um, how they feel about that. So we just got to talk it over. What's kind of like the game plan? Do you anticipate rescheduling this fight down the line uh how long do you think you'll be on the men with a type of injury like that we know it's rather limiting also as far as like a training perspective yeah um just listening to my body I've looked it up it takes a little bit of time like a few months to heal um sometimes even up to like six months I've heard but um just listening to my body seeing how it feels getting back in that gym and training you know as hard as I can again doing everything that I do and just trusting in myself and being confident always, that's the number one thing is just being confident when I go in that cage and knowing that I'm a lion in there and uh, I'm going to, you know, go to work. And uh, so we'll just see what happens. What type of uh, disciplines have you been taught in? Like, uh, what is kind of like your style and how did that uh, come together towards what you are today? Yeah. So MMA, you have to train everything. This is, you know, anything can happen in that cage and you got to be ready for that. Like I said, you know, I was a wrestler growing up, um, did some elite level wrestling. I was a part of the all-star team here in my area. Um, I was invited to nationals down in uh, Fargo. And then also uh, I've placed, you know, at California uh, state wrestling tournaments about seven times, you know, my highest accolade being second place in Greco Roman. I'm known for, you know, my really good stand-up skills. I have good hand fighting, things like that. And so just, and staying square, you know, you don't want to get taken down or thrown and things like that. So that's really translated well into my MMA career because straight off the bat, you know, I had a good stance, um, kept my guard up and I was just, I was ready. Like I, I was a dog in there just, I kept training hard, 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 no excuses. No, that's, that's impressive. And, and just for, you know, listeners that don't understand how hard wrestling is in California, right, is you have the CIF tournaments. And so, like, in other states, they break it into, like, oh, there's 3A, 4A, 5A, and those are, like, the size of your schools, right? So you have all your small schools wrestle each other, big schools wrestle each other, medium schools wrestle each other. But in California, it's just everybody. They just throw them all into, into big brackets. And then by the time you get to – the state tournament in California, you know, it's, it's literally the best of the best. And so that's impressive. And that's why, you know, you have all of these California schools that are always, you know, creating outstanding, you know, college and Olympic level talent. It's, it's definitely impressive. Mike, if you had to, I guess, do a comp, who would you say as far as like a big name that people would know that you sort of emulate your style off of? Um, or if you're like, hey, I really like his style, I try to mix in some of his stuff or her too. Yeah, um, just watching all these fighters, um, I know it's maybe a little bit cliche to say, but Conor McGregor just has a good style. You know, I like the way that he carries himself. 
in the beginning when he was just, you know, on the climb, you know, I, I really admired that and uh, just the way that he threw his kicks and things like that. So I wanted to take that into consideration and start working on things like that. And being with my Muay Thai coach that, you know, those kicks have just been super deadly now. And then also uh, Nate Diaz, Nick Diaz, you know, from Stockton, California, you can't be from Stockton and not like those fighters and just look up to them all the time. I remember growing up just watching Nick Diaz fights. And then now with Nate Diaz and just counting on him to, you know, always win and shoot for that title. So I just really like their dog style of boxing and things like that. Um, so just getting in there and just being a dog in there and, you know, you're going to get hit, but you got to hit back. So that's the thing. I guess it's appropriate that you mentioned Nick Diaz. Obviously he's returning to the cage for the first time in five years. And actually Dre, I know you're a big fan of the Diaz brothers as well. Uh, so how excited are you to see him on the UFC 266 card against Robbie Lawler? First time those two are fighting in 17 years. Yeah, too. I'm I'm excited to see it. I'm a little bit worried about Nick Diaz, though. Personally, I, it's just hard to come back from after that long of a layoff. Like your body is just not as sharp, and especially especially a dude like Lawler, right? Is is he's on, not on the top of his game, but he's been doing it a little bit more recently. He's he's been in there fighting top level competition, and so so I, I'm excited. It's always fun to watch the Diaz brothers, and I will say like. They're not necessarily my favorite fighters, but I love the dog mentality. Like, like their technique is really good when it comes to jujitsu. They're striking. I, I appreciate their striking, but you just got to love like dudes that are willing to hop in and scrap. And so whether you like them, you don't like them, you're going to watch their fights just to see what they bring to the table. But Mike, what do you think? I think it's going to be a good fight. Robbie Lawler coming off that legendary fight that he had, just he's he's been in wars and so is Nick Diaz. So I think both of them know what to expect coming into this fight. Um, I think we're in for a good five rounds because, you know, Nick Diaz is not going to stop. He's not going to tap um, and he's not going to get stopped, TKO'd or anything like that. So I think going into this fight, we should expect a war from both of these guys. It's going to be one to remember. I think we should watch this fight coming up. One thing I do appreciate about the UFC is they do a great job with their YouTube channel. And looking back at the fight, I think what really surprised Robbie Lawler was coming in was Nick Diaz went in there striking. He went out there, cracked him a couple times and really put him on his heels. Uh, there is obviously a size advantage too. Uh, Nick Diaz is definitely a taller fighter. Obviously coming from this perspective too, Mike, you know about all about this. You just talked about having a two-year layoff essentially between 2019 and 2021. Uh, what does that mean for a fighter to have that much of a hiatus in between fights? I mean, just not being in the cage isn't really going to affect you as, as long as you're getting those trainings in and you're sparring and, you know, you're working with top level guys. And Nick Diaz is always working with top level guys. Um, and I'm assuming Robbie Lawler does, too. So if you just keep training and, you know, it's the age that's going to get you, you know, the older you get and the more dog fights you get, that's what's going to get you. So um, I'm more concerned about the age. Of these two fighters but i think that if nick diaz is stuck to training all the time and things like that he should be good do you think we will see a finish at 266 no this is going to be a five round dog fight that's what i'm thinking both of these fighters don't give up like i said robbie lawler's been in legendary fights people talk about the rory mcdonald fight but what about the carlos condit fight too like that fight was a war and so robbie lawler's been in that nick diaz has his fair share of dog fights so i think both of these fighters aren't going to quit all right. Uh, well, Mike, let me ask, like, uh, what made you really want to pursue this as potentially a actual career? Obviously, you're talking about going pro. Uh, there's a lot of nuances to what professional fighters have to deal with. Explain that passion for me. 
man i just think it's so hard to explain from the outside or from the inside out and to understand from the outside in that's the way that i see it um i guess the best way i can say is like if you love basketball like you you understand that passion for it you know if you love baseball you understand that passion for it i love fighting i like that adrenaline rush being in that cage and um i think the biggest thing is once those doors close like I remember my first fight, once those doors shut, it was fight or flight mode. And I knew no one in there was going to defend me and not even that rep. So I had to defend myself at all times. And after that fight, uh, I, I may have lost that fight, which is all right. And then I lost my second fight too. So I was 0-2 at one point and just feeling like, man, you know, what am I going to do to get better in here and keep my guard up and, you know, keep, keep composure and things like that. So just training, 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 growing a passion for the training, loving all the arts that, you know, there is in MMA and I'm an artist, like I'm a mixed martial artist. So putting it all together, putting boxing and, and wrestling and, and Muay Thai and jujitsu, putting it all together and just being a well-rounded fighter and, and growing it, a passion for being an artist. That's huge. That's why I just love to fight. So I, that those are the things that I love to do all the time. It's good for my soul. I think everyone like, you know, it's, it's something that you don't, it's not work. It's something that you love to do every day. So I don't wake up thinking, oh, I'm going to work or, oh man, I hate my job, things like that. It's something that I love to do every day. Yeah. So Mike, everybody knows, of course, the big organizations when it comes to MMA, right? So you've got your 1FC, your Bellator, and your UFC, but a lot of people don't understand, I think, the path that it takes to get there. So could you talk about that a little bit of like going from being an amateur to having to go through like some of the local, you know, organizations and fighting in California or wherever you can get fights, you know, Las Vegas, wherever, and work trying to work your way up to those bigger organizations? It's just about making a name for yourself and branding yourself and being marketable. Um, that's the biggest thing that's going to get you up there. That's the way that I see it, at least. And also, you know, coming up from these smaller shows and things like that, people can go pro at any time that they want. That's the thing that a lot of people don't understand is like, I don't have to do these amateur shows right now. I can turn pro if I want to, but it's a matter of growing myself as a fighter and knowing that there is levels to this game and uh, building myself up first, branding myself. And then once I do turn pro, like I've already made a name for myself. I've already created a following in the amateur career. And I have about six or seven amateur fights underneath my belt if at the time I do go pro. So that's the thing too. And then also you can do PKBs, which are uh, kickboxing tournaments. You can go to wrestling tournaments all the time for USA Wrestling. They have an open division. You can go to jujitsu tournaments, things like that. So it's not just MMA record or fights like that. I'm having 30, 40, 50 fights underneath my belt doing all these tournaments and things like that. So I have all this experience going into professional I go into my debut professional and my record's wiped clean. So all my amateur record is done. I go to pro, my record is 0-0. You know, I could go on a three-fight win streak going pro 3-0. Next thing you know, you get a call from Bellator, someone in the area, some someone big, things like that. Combat America, you know, it's just a matter of always training, getting better, knowing that you're ready, talking to your coaches. And once you get there, you know, you'll know what to do. You talk about being marketable. Obviously, notorious MMA, Conor McGregor, Diamond Dustin Poirier, Donald Cowboy Cerrone. How did Mike the Mobster Gomez come about? Oh, man, that's such a funny story. So I was in Monterey with my family, you know, having a good time over there. We went through one of these little like picture boots and it was like old fashioned picture boots. And this lady put on uh, like a suit, like a black suit and tie on me. 
with like a, you know, the hats that the mobsters wear. And then she gave me something to hold in my arm. And I was all like, okay. And I look at the picture like later on and I'm like, man, like I look like a mobster. And I'm thinking at the time, like, man, what, what should my name be for fighting? Like, what, what do I, I don't even know. I came up with like Gorilla Gomez and things like that. I'm like, nah, that's lame. And then uh, um, I even made some, some shirts that have a gorilla on there too. And so I look back at those shirts. Those are my first shirts that I made. They were pretty nice. I'm very proud of that. But back to the story, I said, mobster Mike. And, I, and it just clicked. And so I, I was telling my friends. I'm the mobster now and telling my girlfriend, I'm the mobster, things like that. Telling my family, I'm the mobster, Mike, my coaches. And they're like, okay, like that sticks. And then I win my uh, third fight. I go on a one, I'm one and two now. And the announcer mobster, Mike wins in the red corner. I was like, this is it. This is going to stick. I feel as though if you are choosing a gorilla gimmick, you have to be like at least a heavyweight. I feel like gorilla only fits if you're kind of that build, you know, kind of got that frame going on. Um, I do have to give you credit, though, because it takes a tough man to wear a fedora because that could go either way. You could either go on to that super simp side or you could be like that badass, that monster, that old school guy. So uh, credit to you. I'm surprised your girlfriend stuck around when she's like, yeah, call me the monster. That's uh, that could go either way there, Mike. It was definitely, yeah, at first I was me being uh, joked by by my girlfriend, but that's all right. But then after, it was all good. No, I, I love the mobster nickname and the mobster moniker. I think it definitely fits better than, you know, Gorilla Gomez. So as, as much as I'm sure those first shirts were sick, and I'm sure a whole lot of people would have loved them, I, I like the mobster a lot more. You know, you're talking about branding, building a brand and all that. Could you also talk about sponsorships? Have you started looking at like people to get you sponsored? Do you already have sponsors? And what's it going to be like trying to grow that? Because I know that that's a huge source of revenue for a lot of fighters, even the big name pros. So I've been reaching out to uh, local businesses here in the area um, for sponsorship. Um, it's really good to sponsor a fighter and get your name out there because fighting's coming up. Even the amateur shows are huge. Showing your brand out there and, and not afraid to take that lead to sponsor a fighter and get into this MMA business. Um, been looking for sponsors. Don't have any yet. Pre-COVID, um, I was sponsored by this t-shirt company and they made my t-shirts for a really good price, put their logo on there um, and the shirts sold really well. They sold out. Um, so that was pretty exciting. And uh, I was going to do some business with them again for uh, this upcoming fight. But then, you know, some things happened. So have you hit up Condom Depot yet? <laughs> I have not, but I'll look into it. <laughs> You know, that is a thing that kind of leads into a topic that we definitely want to discuss. So fighter pay, obviously, uh, sponsorships are a big source of revenue for a lot of fighters. And going back to, yes, I joke about it, the Condom Depot days, fighters were able to reach out to sponsors, have them located on their pants, on their equipment, whatever it may be. Um, and that helped them, you know, add, add to their revenue stream a little bit. Obviously, the UFC went out there, they uh, got a deal with Reebok, and that led to uh, that being less of that NASCAR feel. That's at least how they kind of like uh, explained it. The UFC has done other things too to add revenue to the sport. Uh, $175 million 10-year deal with a crypto agency, uh, $1.5 billion ESPN television deal. Um, right now, at this point, so fighters earn about 12 to 18% of the revenue from the organization of UFC. So UFC fighters, about 12 to 18%. Compare this to the other mainstream sports, the NFL, the NBA, MLB, where the share is closer to 50%, at least in the 40%. 
When you hear that as a young fighter, Mike, uh, does that at all discourage you um, when you're trying to work your way up through this industry? I'm not really worried about the pay right now as much um, just getting that experience here in the amateurs because amateurs don't get paid. Um, so if you're a promoter, you know, and you want to be in the amateur business, you're probably going to make a lot of money because you don't got to pay these fighters. But when it comes to like getting medical fees and things like that done, um, it does get expensive. So making a little bit of money would help just to cover those costs. And then going into a pro career, going into the UFC, if I were to make it that far and the fighter pay I was getting for some of those fights, putting on elite level fights, then compared to the NFL too, as you said, it's like, why, why do it when you're putting your body on the line? Um, and then you have other people making a ton of money for just promoting a fight. Um, so that's the thing, you know, we, we fighters need to get paid a little bit more um, and then we'll be good. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think that fighters are incredibly underpaid. I mean, you do have your rare occasions like a Cronin McGregor, right, or Anderson Silva back in the day, uh, John Jones before some of his issues. Um, but even now, John Jones, I think, is still pretty marketable. Um, I guess, Mike, I would, I would want to ask you, how do you think that we can bring a little bit more balance or how do you? How do you think uh, we can go about implementing, you know, whether it's different processes, new business structures to get fighters more pay? What do you think it's going to take? Do you think it's unionization? Do you think it's something else? Well, you mentioned unionization. Um, I don't think the Conor McGregor's or the John Jones's are going to be a part of that union because they're already making a, a lot of money. So that's the thing. Um, it would be tough to get them a part of that, get a part of that movement. It's more for the for the smaller fighters that haven't created a name for themselves yet, or, you know, they have a small fan base, they're not selling, they're not making those ticket sales, things like that, and getting people interested in the sport. But the business has money to give them to increase that fighter pay and to build a marketing strategy around them too. You know, that's the thing. As tough as it would be to get a union, though, I, I think part of the reason it would be a net benefit and believe me, I, I'm always one of these guys, too, that I'm always thinking of the team when it comes to stuff like the NFL in particular. I've always been a big proponent of I think the owner friendlier leagues tend to be better for fans. But when it comes to these independent contractors um, in terms of whether it be not only MMA, but WWE, it does get a little bit of a stickier territory. And there's not a great fit because there's always another guy. That's one of the constant issues I think that does affect these fighters. But some of the things that I do think that need to change is you mentioned medical bills. I, I think that fighters shouldn't have to really like do that cost. Like uh, certainly like, let's say yourself right now, obviously you're on the men from a broken rib. If that cost was covered um, in your expenses, that would be, I think, better for the sport. Uh, fighters spend about five to 10% of their uh, earnings in gym fees. Uh, you look at a athlete like Russell Wilson, he spends $1 million on his body each and every year. I would imagine that the most elite level UFC fighters also spend about that much on their body as well, whether it be special diets, uh, training exercises, whatever it takes. Then you have to pay a manager. That's about 20 to 30% of your fees. So like you're really cutting into like the, how much people could really make just because there's extra costs added into being a UFC fighter that I don't think really people really think of. And I do think that one of the big problems is if you can't give them a little bit more of that revenue split, I, I think that there should be something to these TV deals. There should be something to uh, these $175 million deals with like uh, 
extra organizations and stuff, especially if you're going to be cutting off like a huge source of income, like uh, with uh, their equipment, their kits, etc. I think that that's kind of like the grosser stuff in the industry. 53% of fighters make less than a hundred K. So it's a big sport. Um, but when you do think about that, there's less athletes in the UFC than there is in a NFL, than there is in a NBA, than there is in an MLB. Hell, you have three different organizations uh, between AAA, AA, single A, and you have all these individual fighters that are making less than a hundred K for one of the most uh, physically demanding sports in the modern uh, athletics. I, I think that those are kind of issues that I think they can be resolved. And there's a lot of public pressure right now by fighters that are getting thrown on Dana White and the UFC organization as of the moment. But it needs to be more because uh, I don't think they can maintain 18% of a revenue split consistently for the next 20 to 30 years. I think that that needs to be changed as as the sport continues to evolve. No, I, I, I agree, Juju. I think that um, that it's not sustainable, especially now we're starting to see some of those big athletes come from other organizations. And I'm not talking about just fighting organizations, right? But you've got, you know, the Greg Hardys and, and you know, NFL players and, you know, some basketball players that played basketball in college and all that. And so now that MMA, I think for a long time, you could have argued that, oh, this is a growing sport. We need more of the revenue from the UFC to market it, right? Or the other organizations, the 1FCs, the Bellators, we need that revenue so that we can market the product and grow it. But MMA is quickly becoming one of, if not the biggest sport in, in the world. I mean, I don't know if it'll ever topple soccer, for instance. But MMA, you can do it on any continent. You can do it. You don't yeah. need a whole lot of equipment. And so those arguments of like, oh, you know, we, we still got to grow. We still got to promote. I think, you know, it's almost on autopilot now. You can just keep doing the same formula and start increasing fighter pay. And I imagine you'll attract better athletes. You know, we're already starting to get interest from soccer players like a, a Jose Aldo or, like I said, football players and, and basketball players. And so now you can attract these elite level athletes. And I personally think that the, the UFC and other top organizations that can pay a lot more money they'll have like cream of the crop athletes, even better athletes than, you know, what they currently have. And they've already got some of the best of the best. Um, but when you can attract top level talent with pay and you can pay for them to do all of the physical training and upkeep of their body, you do end up getting, you know, better fights and, and you end up getting a better product that you can already, you know, promote. So spend a little bit more money now and make a little bit more money later when you have these huge super fights with these amazing athletes that continue to grow with the sport, I, I could see that kind of argument too. We are already starting to see some elite level athletes coming in. Closing thoughts here before we get into like some of those elite level athletes to talk about. Like I mentioned, the current business model, it's been good for the sport as it continues to grow and evolve. Um, as you mentioned, the UFC is relatively, in terms of other sports, maybe about in its adolescence. It's not quite at full grown adult status. It's the sport's maybe about 30 years old, give or take, 40 years old, uh, depending on how far back you want to trace it. Whereas, you know, obviously the NFL, MLB have been around for 100 plus years. So they've more or less had the opportunities to collectively bargain and get some of the deals that they have. At this point, I've heard in a recent interview, Dana White say stuff like they're back up to 100%. So COVID didn't even really hit them as hard as it hit other sports. If you listen to some of the brass, they'll say fighter pay is up 600% since 2005. But I think that now as they continue to evolve, the only way to really scale the UFC 
is to stop evaluating them on what they were and evaluating them on what they are now. And what they are now is a organization that ESPN is offering big time bucks to. ESPN alone is offering, again, a $1.5 billion television deal. That says it all to me. <laughs> anyway, let's get into some elite level athletes. Let's get into some actual fights. Too. We touched on like Nick Diaz here, but I think one of the biggest headlines coming out right now is uh, this kind of kerfuffle right now at the heavyweight division. And heavyweights are a lot of fun to talk about. We've had a lot of fun talking about the heavyweight division in the past. Obviously, loving to talk about Francis Ngannou and just that elite level that he is at. But he's not the bona fide champion, really. There's technically an interim champion. And I'm so confused by this concept. And honestly, I kind of hate it. Interim champions. What good are they? Mike, do you have an opinion on this one? I mean, it's really just saying that you're the second best champion and nobody's going to remember the second best champion. You know, it's it's all about getting that world championship belt. The interim is just a placeholder. I don't even think, you know, you are a champion if you have the interim championship belt and you haven't, you know, faced the real champion or you're not at the top of the division. So that's just gets you that number one contender spot to fight the champion. And become the world champion. I think for a more casual MMA take, like it, it just causes a lot more confusion than it's really necessary. And this really came about too. So Francis, he wants to fight John. They couldn't get John because going back to some of the fighter pay issues, John wasn't down. Now this led to a little bit of a delay and Dana still wants to schedule a, a heavyweight title fight. So that leads into Cyril gone versus Derek Lewis. Gone, knocks out Lewis, no problem. Quick fight, easy fight for him. So now you're setting up potentially a fight between Gon and Nganu uh, later this year. Now, Dre, um, with kind of that mix, um, what do you anticipate for the future of the heavyweight division? It's awesome that we have like a good amount of four guys. And then I forgot to even mention Stipe is still waiting for his rematch too. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. I think this is, you know, some of the best fighting we've seen out of the heavyweight division and, you know, maybe ever, uh, especially with how technical some of these guys are. So you had Stipe, who was extremely technical. And then, of course, he lost to Nganu, who uh, I would say on his feet is, and on the ground, he's maybe not as technical as some of the other names you've mentioned, such as, you know, Cyril Gaon or Cyril Gain, however you, you say his last name, right? Uh, but Nganu has just so much power that, like, he can overcome some of those technical deficiencies. And then, of course, like we said, the interim champ, Cyril, he's just a freaking beast. I saw um, an old sparring session between him and Nganu, in fact. And Cyril can, you know, he's smooth, he's fluid, he looks just like one of, you know, the smaller fighters. Uh, that is more technical. And so I'm really excited about the future of the heavyweight division. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen with John Jones. I know John Jones is another one of those dudes who's been on a long, long layoff, a long break. But from, you know, all accounts, he's putting on muscle in a good way, a, a good sustainable weight, you know, unlike the last time that he started basically bodybuilding and, and he looked slow coming off that. So if John Jones can keep that same sort of fluidity and smoothness to his technique, as well as increase his strength. Um, you pair that with, you know, the long range that he already had at light heavyweight. He brings it to heavyweight. He's still just as tall and just as long as pretty much everybody else. Um, I, I definitely think we can get some interesting matchups. As far as like what's going to happen next, though, I feel like John Jones, no matter what, still isn't going to get paid what he wants to get paid so i do see the next fight being in gone and gone i think that that'll be a really good fight and in fact i could see that being one of the fights that francis and gone loses 
That's interesting because um, the way that I've seen Francis Ngannou grow throughout his career when he fought Stipe the first time and lost, he was a, a wild puncher. He would throw his punches out from the side. And then going into the second fight with Stipe and the way that he just stopped him and stayed calm and hit him with some good shots. I think Francis Ngannou is a deadly, deadly gorilla, as we were talking about earlier. Only uh, world heavyweight champions can be called the gorilla or something. I don't think that Gain's going to stop him. Um, I think after that fight, Miocic should get his rematch. Will that happen? Um, that's all going to depend on John Jones if he wants to come out. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, that fighter pay. You know, if he gets paid what he wants to get paid, he'll definitely come out and fight Francis Ngannou and he'll be motivated. And the way that I see it is if Francis Ngannou and John Jones fight, uh, I think John Jones is going to beat Francis Ngannou. Here's my issue with the interim, going back to the interim title thing. This causes so much confusion in the division because I think Ngannou's the favorite as well against Gon. Um, but let's say Gon is able to beat Ngannou. Then this causes a whole mess because now it's like, does Stipe fight Gon? Does he fight Ngannou again? Does Ngannou just go off and do his own thing? It, it just, you, you understand kind of this whole musical chairs that causes in the division, because obviously UFC is a very unpredictable sport. Uh, we've gone into fights uh, really uh, resolute in our uh, picks for those particular instances. And when you have someone like uh, Ngannou or Gon, who has this knockout power, it could be over an instant. And then suddenly it's like, what do you do with this next fight? And I, I, I'm glad that I'm not Dana White in this particular thing of having him be a matchmaker. Yeah, I, I think the UFC almost in, in some ways dug their own grave, right? Because you have a limited number of weight classes. And so there's only a select amount of champions. But what the UFC has done is they always want to have a champion on their pay-per-view bouts, right? So that means you get one every, you know, every month. So you've got 12 a year, if not, you know, one extra sometimes around like New Year's or something like that. And so they feel this need to constantly have like, there has to be a champion fight. There has to be a champion fight. And so then they go on and create these interim champions when it's like, hey, nobody, nobody can fight this month. They've gotten a little bit better with having some like, non-champion headliners but that's really only with like conor mcgregor i think is the only one that i've seen um maybe the bmf title but other than that it's like you know that this constant need to always have champions feed their pay-per-view you know main events it's like well what happens when some of your champs are hurt or they just want to take a little bit longer to get back into the game you know and and it causes this whole dilemma the other thing i don't necessarily like about interim champs is like mike said they are just a placeholder they're like hey you're second best to the champion but then the interim champs never fight to defend an interim championship either so then you know if the interim champ can't fight and then the main champ can't fight it puts the division on hold for for everybody and so i don't necessarily have a point to my rant except for i agree with you juju interim championships can sometimes suck i mean i get the i get the point that the ufc is making trying to make everything a championship fight but it, it sucks for the fans sometimes i mean nagano really just won that title in march march it's not even like we had to even wait that long and then suddenly we have the gone versus uh lewis fight just literally like two three months later it's like what the heck can't, can't we wait a little bit i know we live in a little bit of a microwave culture but give give us a little time guys let us enjoy this Nganu title yeah, no, I think uh, interim belts have been abused over the past few years just because, you know, the UFC is wanting to put on so many championship fights. The interim belt was for when a UFC champion gets hurt, then 
there's an interim champion. And then when the injured fighter comes back from his injury, then that champion is going to fight the interim champion to settle that dispute. But now it's just about, well, we need to make another championship fight. There's a huge weight gap between lightweight and welterweight. You could throw a 165 pound division right there. And then you'd have yourself another champion. You know, you look at boxing and there's all these different belts and all these different weight classes and there's multiple different belts. Well, in the MMA world, anyone just wants to be a UFC champion at the end of the day because they've created that monopoly on the market. So why not just add more weight classes? No, that's a that's a really good point. Because, yeah, you're exactly right, Mike, is that interim belts used to be like, hey, somebody got hurt, right? Like they tore their ACL, they broke their leg you know they're going to be out for at least six months, probably, if not longer. Um, so if they're out for a year, of course, you don't want to keep the division on hold. Let's throw an interim in there. And, and so, you know, a lot of the ones that I remember were like Dominic Cruz back in the day. Like he was a great champion, but he was always injured. And so you're not going to keep the belt, you know, on hold for three years. That makes sense. But yeah, you're right. Now it's just sprinkle an interim champion there, sprinkle one here. Like, oh, you know, we need to we need to promote a fight, interim champion. And so, but I think you have a really good point about breaking up some of the weight classes because even between like, like you said, the light and welterweight, like you can definitely throw one in there. I think you can also even do like, if you move up light heavyweight and heavyweight, you can have, you know, cause you have some dudes that are, are bigger than the max. You have some dudes that can fight at 300 pounds, you know, 315. And so I think there's definitely room to add, you know, two, possibly even three more weight classes and not necessarily water down the product. Whole thing's Fugazi or Fugazi, however you say it. It's a wazzy, it's a woozy. Matthew McConaughey's got it. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, you know, I, I think this is a great show so far. We got a lot of great topics. In the whole little fighter pay thing, I guess I should get a quick take from Mike here. Uh, so obviously, uh, Jake Paul, you know, he's fighting tonight. Got a big time fight tonight in the world of boxing. First off, Mike, what's your pick? Our own Woodley's going to finish Jake Paul. That's my pick. Ooh, a finish. You want to put a round to that? We'll say second round, but, you know, I think if Jake Paul's what he's about, he's talking about, he trains all the time. We'll see. This is going to be a tough fight for him. So if he puts up a tough fight those first two rounds, then, you know, maybe it'll go. But if Tyrone Woodley comes out like a lion, he's going to finish Jake Paul. You know, if worst case, if Woodley does finish Paul, I say worst case because at the moment, this is pretty much all boxing really has got to roll with in terms of promotion and everything. Hate to say it, but uh, this is the most excited I think people have been about boxing fights in a while when someone fights a Paul brother. You know, we could put Dana in <laughs> Jake Paul in the middle of a ring together because, you know, Jake is definitely making some waves uh, going after Dana. I saw him on an interview recently with Ariel Hawani. So literally two of Dana's least favorite people on the same interview together talking about fighter pay. I think that that just must have triggered him so much and just seeing that one go in there. Uh, you know, that leads into another topic here. Dre, like, uh, what do you think about Ariel Hawani leaving ESPN? Does that kind of bum you out from a coverage standpoint? It, it does sort of bum me out, but I think, like, the nice thing about MMA becoming such a big sport is that now you're starting to get a lot of other venues. You're starting to get, you know, MMA-centric podcasts. Um, you're starting to get other talk shows. And, you know, even some of the big networks, right, like FX Sports, for instance, you know, you and I, we always watch, you know, Skip and Shannon on Undisputed, and they're starting to talk about it more. And so while it does bum me out, because I did like Ariel's content, specifically on ESPN, 
I don't mind it because I'm sure he'll continue to do something else. And so I can always go go that route to get the content from him. So I think they'll bring in somebody good for sure. I'm, there's a lot of other people, like I said, that are starting to get into MMA, especially now that it's it's mainstream and, and you're going to have a lot of other, you know, broadcast and journalism uh, experts that, that can step right in. So yes, it is a loss, but I don't think it's as, you know, severe as a loss just because, like I said, these guys can go on to any network now. And, and I think it helps in a lot of ways, just, just bring the conversation to a broader range and broader audience. What do you think, uh, Ariel's onus is on it in terms of like his relationship with Dana White? Because I know that there have been some issues in the past that have put those guys at each other's throats in particular, uh, Brock Lesnar being in attendance at the UFC event where he got into the ring with uh, Daniel Cormier. Uh, <laughs> do you think that Ariel, like, wh- what's that balance as a journalist? Do you are you just obligated to break everything, or if the company is telling you don't do it, should you just not do it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it's really hard, and and it's one of those things where like the UFC, sort of like Mike was saying, has this monopoly. So for a long time, like they had basically total control over everything. Um, but I think as they start to become, you know, more mainstream and more popular, part of being a sports journalist is to break some of those stories. And so I, I personally always like it when, you know, you get like Woj bombs, for instance, in the NBA. It's like, you know, it makes you excited and it's like, oh, snap, something's going to happen. Something big's going down. I can't wait to hear more about it. And I think, you know, I think those are necessary. And so I understand that like Dana White wants to control all of the narrative out of the UFC. And I'm sure, you know, the other big organizations have that as well with like one in Bellator, though a little bit less so. Um, just because they're covered a little bit less, especially here in the United States. But I think as, like I said, MMA, you know, grows and becomes prominent, um, I actually think that that's going to become more prevalent. And I think that uh, it's almost necessary to have these journalists that are willing to go in and, you know, get the inside scoop, whether it's at training camps, whether it's at in the locker room right before fights and all that. So I, I know that Dana will probably bump heads with everybody that's trying to do that sort of route of journalism. But I think it's necessary. Ariel's really bumping heads with them too. He's calling them fake journalists out there too. So, you know, he's not too, he's kind of putting his own little fight out there. So he'll turn by Ariel Hawani. You know, are you excited for the Stephen A MMA takes? You know, no, Stephen A, Stephen A is awful. Like, I know he tries with boxing and MMA. Uh, but like I said, like it, it's a give or take. Like I'm glad that MMA and you know and combat sports are gaining some prominence in just the mainstream sports sector. Like I think it's a great thing. For a long time, all you ever heard was baseball, football, basketball here in the United States, soccer everywhere else. But now it's like, oh, MMA is you know sneaking its way in there, right? As sort of that fifth sport, it might overtake a few, especially here in America. It'll definitely overtake soccer at least, right? And so while I don't like the analysis that big names like Stephen A and even sometimes like Skip Bayless, right? Even though I mentioned them, they don't always have the best takes because they don't understand what's going on. And in fact, right, like Mike was saying, once you're inside, you know what's going on. Once you can see like like you've done jujitsu for a little bit, you start to understand what it means by controlling distance, even when a guy's on top of you or or you're underneath. You understand like, oh, don't put your hand on the mat, right? It's going to get, you know, you're going to get kimura or you're going to get armbarred or something like that. And guys that have been covering football and basketball, they don't understand that. So the, some of their takes are just complete BS and you're like, oh, that was a shitty take, right? 
like he has no idea what he's talking about. But on the flip side, like I said, I'm glad it's becoming mainstream. It needs to be out there and it's going to help the sport grow. Mike, you want to talk about your excitement for the future of MMA? Yeah, I think it's a growing uh, industry too. And I think what fueled it was during the COVID era because Dana White adapted to that. He said, I'm going to go have fights um, on the other side of the world. And people love those fights. The fighters still got to fight um, as long as they went through those safety protocols. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, they're back up to 100% here in the States. Um, so that's exciting. I think that uh, the vision for the future is the UFC is going to end up being the, you know, next NBA or the next NFL. You know, as much as we like to shit on Dana from time to time, talk about fighter pay, these Ariel Hawani rivalries, these random issues with fighters, you do have to have to say the guy has some big time balls and that's definitely what's put MMA and UFC in particular on the map. Uh, speaking of being on the map now, Mike, thank you for coming by the Slump Buster. We appreciate your time here. Is there anything that you're hoping to plug? Obviously, you know, you were coming in here. You're hoping to talk a little bit more about your fight. That's not happening. Uh, where can people follow you and kind of like keep track of your career moving forward? Yeah, so just the main source that I post on all the time is my Instagram. You can follow me at Mobster Mike. Um, just simple as that. Mike the Mobster Mike or uh, Mike Real Mike. You might still have that IG handle. We got to check in on that one there. Actually, I want to plug my gym that I'm training at, Gracie Fighter Stockton, and uh, all those guys over there, um, and my coach, Gabriel Torres, great coach, uh, Muay Thai coach. Um, also want to plug my teammates, Ryan Atterbury. He's a professional fighter. Um, want to plug my other coach, Phil Collins. Um, he's my MMA coach. Um, and then just all my supporters that always support me and come to my fights and buy all my merch and things like that. Like, thank you so much. I appreciate all you guys. And um thank you gotta show love to the guys in the back uh you have a coach named phil collins though i can't just slide past that one here <laughs> yeah yeah they call him phil the pain collins he was coaching me uh my last uh three fights and um got me to that two and two record um so you know very blessed dre any closing thoughts no i just want to say again thanks juju for you know always letting me come on and and i love talking to mma so uh, we'll have to do it again. Hopefully after, you know, the Woodley and, and Jake Paul fight, we can have a, a topic to, to talk about. Maybe we'll get Mike back on. Oh, yeah. If that one ends in a finish or ends certainly in a finish like Mike is talking about here, then we'll definitely have to exchange words on that one, guys. Uh, but if you want to stick around for that one, if you want to stick around for that video, you have to hit that subscribe button. It's right there, guys. Go ahead and hit that subscribe at Slump Buster Podcast on IG, at Slump Buster Pod on Twitter. If you want to show some love, definitely leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes or leave a like on this video. Check out our partner, kmancoffeeco.com. Come on, don't be a chump. Use promo code SLUMP. Save yourself some money on your next delicious purchase of cold brew coffee from kmancoffeeco.com. Mike, Dre, Juju, stay safe, happy, and healthy, and we'll see you on the next one.